This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, and welcome to our second virtual colloquium. I'm Sandy Timmons, Chair of Chancellor's Associates, and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Chancellor's Associates is dedicated to continuing our programming and offering new ways for you to engage with campus, even when most of us are staying at home. We will also still award Chancellor's Associates scholarships to new students enrolling this fall, and our goal to sponsor 800 Chancellor's Associates scholars on campus in perpetuity is now more important than ever. One of the amazing things about UC San Diego is that we have researchers that are innovators in their field. They are driving the work that is creating the change in our world. This afternoon, our speaker will be breaking down for us how the ocean can impact our health, particularly during this pandemic. And yes, she's top of her field. To introduce our distinguished guest speaker, we have Vice Chancellor of Marine Sciences and the Director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography, Margaret Leinen who will share how Dr. Kimberly Prather and her work have made an impact. Please welcome VC Margaret Leinen. Thank you. Thank you so much. And hello, and thank you. thanks to all of you for tuning in today. Uh, as director of Scripps Institution of Oceanography, many of my colleagues are international leaders in climate change research and conservation, technology development, uh, the intersection of human health and the oceans. And it is my pleasure to introduce you to one of the foremost of those leading edge researchers, today's speaker. Kim Prather has been one of the most dynamic and pioneering researchers uh, uh, for going on 20 years, not just here at UC San Diego, but really at an international level. Here at UCSD, she is a distinguished chair in atmospheric chemistry, uh, and she has appointments both at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. She is the inventor of the atmospheric time of flight mass spectrometer. This is an instrument that analyzes the chemical composition of individual particles in the air. And she has used it to make groundbreaking findings on how sources, both local and half a world away, can influence cloud formation, snowfall, snowmelt, and numerous other climate variables. She has pioneered studies of the journey aerosols ejected from the ocean make as they enter the atmosphere and how they change chemically and how they influence climate along the way. And to do that, she has created what might be the world's smallest ocean atmosphere system. It is inside a wave tank building on the Scripps campus. And though I said it was uh, small, it, it's really quite large in size. It occupies a whole building. And it performs unique experiments that are characterized by collaborations of researchers from a wide range of scientific disciplines not only at Scripps, but around the world. And Kim's studies of aerosols led her to consider the human health aspects of aerosol transmission. And that, of course, in recent months, landed her at the epicenter of COVID-19. 
Kim has been courageously bringing science into the national discussion over the coronavirus. And I assure you, it is not for the faint of heart. So what I, for one, am a huge fan of hers. And at this time, I'd like to turn the virtual microphone over to her and let her tell you about these most interesting past few months and a bit about what went on before them. So it's my privilege to say, take it away, Kim. Okay, well, um, thank you for that wonderful introduction, uh, Margaret, and um, thank you for having me here today. Uh, and um, welcome to all of you to this format that we're all sort of getting used to in, in the Zoom world with my cat meowing in the background. We had the dog quiet, but not the cat. Uh-oh. Okay. Um, so she hasn't, she hasn't meowed the whole day until right now. All right. So uh, what I would like to do as... Um, Professor Leinen mentioned, is I will be discussing the research uh, that we're doing that has sort of, it's been sort of an interesting path um, to go from research that I've done for years, very focused on air quality um, and climate, and now moving more into the human health effects. And so today I'm going to sort of stitch it all together and um, end up telling a little bit about some of the efforts we're doing in the community um, related to uh, the basically the transmission of this current virus that we're all dealing with. And I have a feeling there will be some active discussion at the end um, on this, and I look forward to that as well. Okay, so as I mentioned, I will basically, as the title hints at, um, I'm going to talk about the connections between the oceans and us and the air quality um, of what we're breathing. So I always like to start out with this sort of movie that reminds us that the atmosphere has no walls. This shows you the aerosols traveling around the planet. All the different colors are aerosols coming from different sources, as I described. Desert dust, sea spray from the ocean, air pollution from different cities, wildfire smoke. These are all aerosols, and they can travel all the way around the globe. And so they start, they're very tiny sizes, invisible, completely invisible, to things that you actually can see, um, things like dust in the atmosphere, as shown here. You can see the spray. Those are much larger. And so that's a, been a big part of the discussion with regards to this, this virus, in fact, is how big are aerosols. And I'll talk more about that towards the end. So a huge part of my research has been trying to understand how aerosols that come from all different sources affect our climate and our weather. Um, and so now I'm sort of shifting over, as I mentioned, to how these are actually affecting uh, human health. Perhaps the least understood aerosol impact on climate and on health has to do with the oceans. And that's rather shocking given that aerosol, that oceans cover 71% of our earth. Uh, but it turns out to be a really major challenge to sort of isolate uh, what's coming out of the ocean. And so we've done that in this National Science Foundation Center that I direct called CASE. You'll hear me talk about CASE quite a bit. It's called the Center for Aerosol Impacts on Chemistry of the Environment. It's located here at UC San Diego, and it also has, well, now about 12 other institutions that are also involved around the United States, as well as a number of international partnerships. And so what CASE set out to do was, as, as Margaret mentioned, is to transfer the complexity, the full complexity, as much as we can, of the ocean and the atmosphere into the lab, where we can actually study it. One of the challenges with going out into the real world is that, um, basically, as that first movie showed you, everything's all mixed up. All the things that come from humans, all the things that come from natural sources. And so to try and just 
understand the contributions and what the ocean is doing, it's been really, really a challenge. And people have been stuck on this for many decades. So you stop and think about it. Most people think about what comes out of the ocean and they think about seawater and they think about salt. But in fact, there's hundreds of millions of viruses, bacteria, phytoplankton that are responsible for giving us 50 to 85% of the air that we breathe, the oxygen we breathe, uh, proteins, lipids, all signs of life are present in the ocean. So how do you replicate that in the lab? We did that, as Margaret mentioned. I'll just show you one um, picture here of a study we did this last summer, which shows this large wave channel, which has natural seawater in it, as well as lights on it. And I'll show it's a movie. So you can see it's actually quite big. In this, in this study called Seascape this last summer, we had over 90 people from around the world. This is, all there, this is usually an empty room with this channel. So it was quite a large experiment. And in this experiment, we were basically asking, how does the ocean, how do things that get out of the ocean influence our atmosphere? And in turn, what's really important about the ocean is it actually produces a lot of um, aerosols that seed clouds and ultimately can control the temperature of our planet. We've, we've actually, we call the ocean, it's been called the pl a planetary thermostat in that by releasing things into the atmosphere, it can change the cloud properties and actually cool or warm our atmosphere to sort of keep it in this, this very narrow range. Another analogy that's really interesting to make is the earth is very much like we are in that it functions in a relatively narrow temperature range. Um, beyond that, if it gets a little too warm, just a little too warm, uh, things start to not work so well, very similar to us. And so the ocean has a tremendous role in actually trying to regulate the temperature of our planet. And this is one of the things that we are working at in this facility trying to understand. So I'm going to shift over to sort of thinking about, you know, how do we, you know, how do we think about what gets out of the ocean? Because I'm going, I'm, I would like to sort of focus this talk today, um, which is relatively short on what's getting out, how does that relate to viruses, and how could that be impacting our health. So the concept that viruses could get out of the ocean is not a new one in that this is a study published in 1977 uh, called Virus Transfer from Surf to Wind. And it's basically, you know, suggests that viruses can very efficiently uh, get out into the atmosphere. And so we, this, this is a little bit of an overwhelming picture, but I'll try and walk you through it. So what we did was once we had the ocean isolated in the lab that I showed you. We spent two years trying to get it basically clean enough to where we could just look at what happens when a wave breaks. What actually becomes airborne? Do all the bacteria, do all the viruses get into the air or do some remain in just the seawater? And so this, just to sort of draw your eye to the right, the, the sort of redder colors are things that are enriched in the air. We actually see more of them relative to the salts. Whereas the blue things are things that stay more in the seawater. And what should jump out the top are bacteria, different species of bacteria, the bottom are viruses. And so you can see that only certain bacteria become airborne. Same thing with viruses. In fact, lipid envelope viruses, which is what this particular SARS-2 virus is, these tend to be more enriched in the air as well. And so this was our first hint, just looking at the natural ocean viruses and bacteria that are always present in actually pretty high quantities, even though you don't hear that much about them. Just the natural viruses and bacteria play a critical role in the biological processes that go on in the ocean. And so 
the big question that we have now that we're just launching into, we've just been launching into for about the last year, is are there known health effects of these airborne viruses and bacteria? In other words, are they good or bad for us to be breathing? And so that's one of the great things about UC San Diego is we have I say the world's best oceanographic institute. We also have really top researchers, infectious disease doctors, virologists, um, an incredible uh, medical school that can look at the health effects and start, we're just starting to couple our efforts and go after these questions. And so where our focus has been, and you hear about this in the news, is on the Tijuana Estuary and the Imperial Beach. And so in this region, uh, which is, you know, the southern end of, of San Diego, for those of you who don't know. Basically, there's this huge estuary, and it's very common for large amounts of, pollute, we call it pollution runoff, to go into the ocean in this area, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. But basically, the beaches in this region are often polluted and often shut down. So you see signs that say, don't go swimming, don't go surfing. And so we came along and we said, you know, should we be breathing the air? Is any of the stuff that's going into the ocean actually becoming airborne? Based on what we've seen in the lab, we expect that some will, but we don't know which parts will and whether it will actually have, you know, beneficial or deleterious health effects for us. So one of the challenges in this, added challenges, I should say, in this region is that this is, you know, basically um, sea level rise is, is already playing a role. This is work done uh, by Mark Merrifield, who looks at uh, sea level rise and sort of our, decay, our eroding beaches. And we know that Imperial Beach, that even though, you know, the sea level rise doesn't seem that much, when there are large storms, it becomes a problem in that we get tremendous flooding into the city, which just washes all of the pollution that's in the city back into um, the ocean. The other thing that happens when it rains is that the Tijuana Estuary, basically there is a, uh, a wastewater treatment plant that's on the Mexican side of the border. And when it rains, it has a, even when it's not raining, but when it rains, it has a very difficult time in controlling the sewage, the treatment of the sewage. And so raw sewage just drains into the Tijuana Estuary, the Tijuana River, and then that can drain into the ocean. And that leads to major water quality issues, major beach quality issues. And there's been a problem with human health and concerns in, over human health uh, for a very long time down in that area. This is now being addressed through federal funding that we've just gotten. Serge Zadina, who is a major advocate, trying to get things cleaned up down there. And we're working very closely with them on trying to understand the overall pollution effects of this area. And so the news has been obvious. Basically, there's been, um, you know, tremendous amounts, hundreds of millions of gallons of sewage going into the ocean. Right now, there's about 20 million gallons a day going in, uh, but that can get up to be much, much larger. And so this has made the news. People have actually, this year, it's been particularly bad. I think it's been perhaps the worst, you know, in that you can just get a lots of different forms of pollution that drain into the ocean. And many people are calling for this to be, um, a sort of a, a basically an, emer a, an emergency um, declaration for the region. And so basically this has achieved, acquired a lot of attention uh, worldwide. I will point out that, you know, this concept of pollution going into the ocean 
is not just in San Diego, it's everywhere in coastal environments. We just are the first ones to start to think about a little further, not just about what's in the water, but what gets into the air. And so when we think about that, coming back to the slide of just what's in the ocean and how do you sort of think about what becomes airborne, this is sort of your typical ocean, but if you move to Imperial Beach, you know, the coastal ocean, what you think about is now you've got all this pollution. I just listed on the last slide all the different metals and toxins and pathogens that can go into the water. And so then the question becomes, okay, now all of these things are going into the ocean. And one of the one option is they just go into the ocean. The ocean is huge, right? So the water just flows in, it drifts out into the wide open ocean, becomes dilute no problem. And so we, we decided to study this. Uh, the oceanographers, uh, Sarah Giddings and Falk Federson, had a really large ocean-focused study that they allowed us to piggyback on. And in this study, the big question was, if we look at the pollution, this is the Imperial Beach Pier showing here, if we put the pollution into the ocean from the estuary, or we mimic the pollution runoff that we know happens whenever it rains, where does it go? Does it just flow into the ocean or do we actually see something different happen? And in particular, how many surfers and swimmers, how far up and down the coast does this waterborne pollution actually go? And so this just shows the pink is the dye that they put in. They did three dye releases and you can see that it actually doesn't just flow out. It kind of hugs the coastline. And in fact, it can move, pretty far up the coastline they were able to find. And so our question was, you know, basically, if we put air samplers on land, can we detect this dye in the air or not? Now, our thinking is that breaking waves, that's what is key to, you know, to launching things into the air. Without breaking waves, things won't become airborne. They will just stay in the water. But if in fact this dye and this pollution hugs the coastline in the region where waves are crashing, that's going to very efficiently transfer the biology, the, the viruses, the bacteria, the proteins, and the pollutants potentially into the air. And so these are two of my Scripps students, Charlotte Beal, and Matt Pendergraft setting up the air samplers. We put them in various regions in San Diego. We did the three dye releases. This just shows the coat three, all three dye releases. You can see the coastline, you see the pink. That's just a snapshot. You know, so in one, it kind of went into the ocean and hugged the coastline, didn't go that far. The second dye release, it just shot up the coast. And the third one, it kind of hovered near the coast. We also looked, because we're atmospheric chemists, we looked at the winds. We also looked at the waves. Where were they coming from and how big was the swell? And the big question is, did we detect the, this pollution in the air? And the answer is yes. On two of the three dye releases, on the first two days, we saw the dye at multiple locations around San Diego. On one of the dye releases, we didn't. And so what we're working on now is to try and understand, can we actually predict when the pollution is in the water, what, how much of that pollution is becoming airborne? And can we use that as a way to alert the public when they should be more cautious about going outside and breathing air? And so this just shows a comparison of a period where one day where we detected on the left is when we detected it at the site, site two. It, take, it has a little box around how much pollution was in the, how much dye slash pollution, mimicking pollution was in the ocean. And so on this day, we detected it. On another day, 
we didn't. And you can see that it really just depends on what happens to it in terms of the ocean. When it does flow out and sort of gets out of the surf zone, we don't see as much in the air. This is the first time anything like this has ever been done, especially of this magnitude. So these are actually really, we've learned a lot, but it was three die releases, three die releases over a couple of weeks. It was a lot of work to do this particular study, um, quite a costly experiment, but it starts to point to the implications for airborne exposure to things coming out of the ocean. So now I just want to finish sort of talking about things we're doing now. Um, and one of the things we, we just, when, when this particular virus, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID, um, came out, went to the, the National Science Foundation, actually knew we were doing studies in this region, and asked me to submit what's called a RAPIDS proposal, which, and I was able, I got funded in less than 24 hours. The money arrived in less than two days. And if anybody knows the NSF, that's a world record. That's never happened before. But they want us to go out into the environment and actually see if we're detecting these viruses and bacteria in the environment. This is a project that we actually started a year ago with special funding um, from UC San Diego uh, in, a, in an initiative that we refer to as Understanding and Protecting the Planet. And so this is just what the runoff looks like when it drains into, or the sewage looks like when it drains into the estuary. And so we've already been doing this, looking at the viruses, the bacteria, the different pollutants, sort of seeing what is in the estuary, what gets into the ocean, and which parts of that actually become airborne. So this just shows the different types of viruses. They are aerosols, so that's how I become heavily involved. SARS-CoV-2 is on the bigger end of things. This is the, the one that causes COVID. Um, it's even bigger than that. It's about a micron um, when you, it's actually produced when people speak and we can talk more about that. And so one of the questions we have is when this, you know, are we seeing it in the sewage? It actually gets out in stool samples. And so people have detected it in sewage of different cities. Uh, at UC San Diego, we're actually monitoring the sewage of the dorms to make sure to basically, it's a, it's a check to see whether anybody's infected. So if it gets into the sewage and that sewage is running into the river, into the Tijuana River, and then into the ocean, do we see it? So all we're able to say right now, all we're looking for is, is it there? You know, how far does it go? Uh, what we are not able to say, and I wanna be really clear about this, is whether it's infectious or not. That will come later. Basically right now we're just mapping where we find if we find this virus um, in the water and in the air samples. And so these are the places that we're sampling. There's a large group of people, um, Rob Knight and Peter Dornstein, from the sort of microbes and metabolite side of things, of what's in the water, what's in the air. Sarah, Falk, and Mark are very heavily involved on the oceanography side. Jen Burney, she's worked a lot on sort of mapping where airborne disease goes with Jane Burns on a, a project related to Kawasaki disease, which has, there's been an epidemic this year. So we're working with health effects experts in the medical school as well. And so these are the different sampling sites. You can see the, sh the image of the, the estuary and where we're sampling um, up and down. And then we also are sampling at the Scripps Pier as sort of our background um, region to sort of see what we see there, which is sort of the non-polluted, we hope, um, ocean and air up there as well. And so this just shows pictures. We have access to um, the sort of the, the all the region around the estuary. Uh, we you can see they're collecting water here by dropping something off you know, off of the bridge. This is the Hollister Bridge. Uh, but basically, we've been just going out, 
we're going out multiple times now a week. And now the city, thankfully, is actually helping us gather samples because they are obviously very interested in this problem. So we've got, we're coordinating with the city, we're coordinating with Imperial Beach. Before the shutdown, we were just getting ready to start sampling residents of Imperial Beach, um, doing throat swabs to see, okay, if it's in the water, if it's in the air, what actually is getting into humans, that will start happening very, very soon. So this is just some data right off, you know, sort of hot off the press. Uh, it kind of doesn't have a whole lot of meaning. All I want to show you is these are the samples looking at the, the, the sort of the microbes, the species that are present in the estuary, that are present in the air, and that are present in the ocean. And this is just one snapshot on a day when nothing kind of looked like any, like one of the things we're trying to do is say, if it's in the air, does it look more like it came from the ocean? Or has it got a fingerprint more like the estuary? And so we can do this. We can watch these move around. We, they do move around. Some days it looks, we see that what's in the air looks an awful lot like what was in the estuary. Um, we see that on some days. And now we're just trying to understand, working with the oceanographers, we're actually helping them with their modeling so that we can actually use this as a predictive tool to actually not just say, oh, yeah, it's there, but be able to predict the conditions when we expect it to most likely be there. So it's a lot of samples, it's a huge amount of work, um, but this is all ongoing right now. So the last thing I'll just say is we're doing a tremendous amount of outreach. As I mentioned, we have a really nice partnership with Imperial Beach. We're also working with a lot of groups around San Diego. Uh, we've developed these traveling trunks in case um, for education, for aerosols and atmospheric chemistry. Uh, and so this is Jeanette. Uh, she's one of, she's the head of the education outreach and diversity team. And um, basically our group is incredibly active. This is a trunk that you can actually, teachers can check out now from the Natural History Museum. And they can actually do, they can learn about the air through several different ways. One is science experiments. There's also art and there's also storytelling. And so there's demonstrations. This is actually a bottle that's used for cloud in the bottle. So we took it down to Tijuana and we set them up to measure their air quality. So you can see here's a teacher. She made a cloud in the bottle. All the kids are super, they love this demonstration. Uh, you can see they're, they're, she's pumping up the bottle to mimic what happens when a cloud forms. And then, wow, they form, she formed a huge cloud. And these kids, kids love this. So we do these demonstrations in classrooms and exhibits all over. And our partners are also doing these at different places um, in the United States. But also now um, we've translated, translated it into Spanish. So it's, they're being used all over um, Mexico as well as other parts um, of the world. So the last thing I'll say, and this is for Sandy, Sandy Timmons is, has, was my, one of my first uh, guinea pigs to help with this project. And if anybody's interested, let me know. We'll, we'll talk to you. But this is setting up, San Diego's pretty far behind on understanding our air quality. So we're setting up these little sensors that measure particles in the air. This shows a global map. You can pull it up and you can see what the air quality is anywhere at any time. This is the true definition of citizen science. And so these are the these are them. This is a purple air sensor. It measures particles. These each of these. This is San Diego. I don't have Sandy's house on here or my house on here, but we both have them. 
a lot of people are getting them, but you, this is nothing compared to the density in a place like LA. Other cities are pretty far ahead of us. So as part of CASE, we're trying to populate this map a little bit more, uh, both here in San Diego, with a strong focus, uh, south, sort of southern um, San Diego. Uh, people there, you know, have, you know, basically we're supplying them the sensors. So this is the coverage in, was the coverage, I should say, in Imperial Beach, there was one. There was none in Mexico. So we're ra rather proud to say that we, in case, have populated things all the way sort of along the coast with a very strong coastal focus, but also into um, Mexico. So there's actually a couple on top of each other here, but we're working with the local schools. We went down there, we gave them the curricula that go with it, and we're building up these partnerships as we go. And so just to wrap up, you know, microbes and humans and our health are all interconnected. I, I like to say that, that the microbes are trying their best to control the health of our planet. And just like they control the health of us, they're working really hard, but they need a little more help. Like it, it's definitely, I definitely am a believer that if we take care of them, they'll take care of us. Uh, but what's starting to happen is we're mixing up our microbes and um, things are getting a little um, confused and out of control is the nice way to put it. Uh, as I say, I study climate. And so thinking about hurricanes and extreme weather events, they're picking up. And that is one of Mother Nature's ways of telling us that her health is not feeling so good right now. So humans are, there's microbes that are naturally there as we talked about at the beginning, but now we're starting to ha put our own microbes, bacteria and viruses into the ocean, which is changing the microbes that are there. So all these are what we call feedbacks. They're things that are gonna affect things in a way that we don't really, we can't really predict because we've never done this before. So we're trying to study all these things as fast as we can in case, um, but it's a lot. And so this is sort of the focus of what we're on now. Keep in mind that once something becomes airborne, and this is really important for the virus that's happening right now, it can travel hundreds of miles, certainly more than six feet. And so that means that those viruses, those bacteria can impact, you know, agriculture, crops, ecosystems, and many more humans. Once it gets in the air, a lot of people breathe the air, right? A lot more people breathe the air than go to the beach or go swimming. And so that's where our focus is very much on the airborne travel of these microbes. So the Imperial Beach Project is going full bore right now. You know, can we predict airborne exposure for humans? Can we start to tease out how breathing the ocean air? Is it good? Is it bad? And what can we do about it? Um, and, you know, do sort of do the things that we use to shut down the beach so fecal counts and other indicators, working with the city account, the city of San Diego, they have all that. They have, we're on the same samples, they have all that. And then we're looking at the viruses and we're looking at the bacteria and seeing if the traditional indicators that are used to say, close the beach, really work for what's actually becoming airborne that many, many more people are breathing. So the last thing I'll touch on is this, you know, I promised to talk about this virus. And uh, we published a paper May 27th that came out. It'll be in print on June 26th, but it's already been downloaded now 1.2 million times, which is, I'm told, a record for science. Uh, all we did, it, it was with Chip Schooley, who is an infectious disease doc at, um, here at UC San Diego, and a collaborator of mine, we both have aerosol centers in Taiwan. I was very intrigued with how Taiwan had handled this much better than we had. And I, so we, all I did with this paper was just connect the dots of a lot of research that's going on and coming out very fast. And uh, sort of just 
looked at how other places were doing. And when you look at Asian countries that wear masks, it's very notable how much better they have done than we have. Now they've implemented other, uh, they also do social distancing. They also implemented other strategies of control, but the masks really stand out. And so just the dramatic comparison that we put in the paper, you compare New York City, which is about 19 million, to Taiwan, or not New York City, New York as a whole. I should say that's, that should be New York, the state of New York, where there's been 384,000 cases and 25,000 deaths across the entire state versus Taiwan, 445 cases, most of those imported. In other words, people flew in sick already. They didn't catch it there. It never really spread there. And a total of seven deaths and they never locked down. So in this paper, we have this figure that has gone viral about viruses, but it's sending the message of how we can actually, what we need to do to reduce the spread of this virus. And I feel, we feel, many of us in the aerosol science community feel very strongly that, you know, one of the best, the best things we can do, if you have to pick one, is everybody needs to wear masks. And it's not the reason you might initially think. It's not to sort of, it, it will protect you, you know, it will reduce how much you inhale. But more importantly, this particular virus is being spread by people who have no symptoms. Up to 40% of the people are walking around, no symptoms, and spreading this virus. And so since we don't know who they are, since we can't sort of test as many people as we would like to test or need to test, then the best thing we can do is block what they can put out when they're talking. So they're producing these, the normal way you, we think about respiratory viruses getting trans, um, transmitted from one person to another is through coughing and sneezing. Now I just said, these people aren't sick. They don't think they're sick. So they're not coughing and sneezing. So how are they producing viruses? They're producing them through talking. They can produce 1,000 up to about 100,000, they estimate, aerosols about a micron in size. These are the invisible ones. They float. So if you happen to be in a room, a restaurant, a closed room that doesn't have very good ventilation with one of these people that's infected or more of these people, they will be breathing out or speaking out these viruses. And we've seen evidence of this on airplanes and restaurants and the choir, the famous choir practice we talk about. It basically, the smoking gun in all of this, that it points to aerosols as being one of the key ways that things are getting into the, getting transmitted from one person to another, is if you look at these events where there's been these huge events where like 90% of the people have caught this COVID. Um, if you think about it, you know, this, with the six foot rule, they were socially distanced you know, maybe a couple of people would have touched the same thing and a few people, five people, you know, some small percentage would have caught it. But once it becomes airborne, everyone in that room can breathe it. And so that's a major thing that points at the airborne route. Now, probably now the way I've described this, it seems obvious, but the WHO and the CDC and most cities are fighting this. They're saying, nope, it's always in the droplets, it only goes six feet. These are the measures we're putting in place. And that's not working. And so New York City, in opening all of New York, has, has a very strict mask policy. They're one of the only places that's reopening that's not going back up. And I truly believe that it's due to the fact that they've acknowledged that this is one of the major exposure pathways for this virus. So I could go on and on about this. I'm happy to answer questions. Um, I think what I'll do now is stop. And um, I'm happy to, uh, as I say, I'm happy to open it up 
to questions at this point. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. That's incredible. It's so amazing how this is all, um, all intertwined. We do have several questions. And so um, let's go back to the original research and talk about how far up the coast did the dye study go? And uh, follow on to that if somebody is interested in has anybody looked at the health of the bay? And so... Yeah, so it basically, when when they watched the dye, it sort of went up um, towards sort of Coronado. You know, it has to bend around, you know, the bay. And so they were able to visualize it because they were actually had cameras on little things flying to see how far it went. It goes about kind of like just up into that region. If you if you look, those are the beaches that are most commonly closed down. So that wasn't a total surprise. So that's as far as they sort of they saw it go. Um, again, you had to see the pink dye. So you know, who knows at more diluted concentrations. That's why we're kind of looking at the Scripps Pier just to see, could anything get up there? Um, in terms of the bay, we have not looked at the bay. We have thought about the bay because that kind of accumulates things. We also have thought about, um, we'd like to look at the Point Loma outfall, just the outfalls, uh, because the tr sort of the typical wastewater treatment is not taking out the primary treatment is not take, going after the viruses. It's going after the fecal indicators. So there's a lot we would like to look at. So we're collecting it. It's not inexpensive to do this analysis. So, you know, we're collecting as many samples and analyzing as many samples as we can right now, but we have not looked at the Bay yet. So has anybody looked at uh, the viability of the SARS-CoV-2 virus in saltwater? Does anybody know how long it can survive or anything like that? Nobody has. That needs to be done. And so, you know, we just, I mean, people have looked at it. It doesn't look like it likes UV light. So that's good news, right? It says the, there's one paper that just came out that says it lasts about six minutes under UV light. Mm -hmm. So that's good for outdoors. I mean, everything's better for outdoors than indoors for this virus. And so we, we plan, what we're planning on doing, um, we're working with Davy Smith and Chip and their infectious disease doctors, as soon as we see where, like how much we see, or if we even see it, then we plan on collecting samples, taking them to them. And then they can actually do the different, basically controls where you can do, you can put it in salt water, see how long it lives. You can put it in the air. You know, people have looked at how long it lives in the air though. And it lives in the air for one study says up to three hours. They didn't look longer than that. And another study says 16 hours. So those are, are those as aerosols or droplets? Aerosols. Those, that's a great question. Yeah, those are aerosols. They've aerosolized them and looked at how long they live. And so up to 16 hours? Up to 16 hours was sort of um, how long, again, they looked. Mm -hmm. So that was like the half-life. So it can go beyond that. So, you know, these studies are really hard to do the infectious studies, and we need to do a lot more. I, you know, that's kind of the sneak peek. But we need to do a lot more. Yes, yeah, salt water is a big one. Just regular water, sewage water. You know, they don't even, they can't even say there's conflicting results of how long it even stays alive in stool samples. They don't even, there's different results on that. So there's just so much more work that needs to be done on this. Okay, last night you actually said on CBS News that um, uh, UCSD will be uh, sampling um, the sewage from the dorms for return to learn. Yeah. And that... The, it can lead the known infections by how long? By about a week, about seven days. Um, and it actually, you know, it's, they've been using it as a way to sort of assess in other cities. They've been finding this is a great way to assess sort of to tell if there's a big wave coming or not. 
So you get a little bit of pre-warning uh, if you see it. What we're going to use it for at UC San Diego is for that warning. We're also sampling air at UC San Diego in the popular areas to sort of anything we can do to kind of keep a heartbeat on the system uh, to tell if it's going to come so that we can sort of shut things down and isolate people as needed. The great thing about the dorms is each, I didn't know this until I got into doing this, but each of the dorms has its own sewage system. So if there's one dorm that's lighting up with an infection, we'll be able to see that and get those students tested and isolated. If um, everybody wears a mask, how, do, how will that cut down how much we are um, exposing one another to this virus? Uh, last night on CNN, I had Dr. Gupta said that it uh, would uh, decrease the transmission six times. Do you agree with that? I think the studies, there's a study that showed that. One study showed that, one study showed it's 10 times. You know, again, these are things, the masks, we need more studies on the masks. They're complicated. Um, they certainly reduce it. And one thing I will say is the severity of the disease depends on the total dose that you breathe in. So if you cut it in half, even just in half, you'll have a less severe, you'll get less sick. And so to me, anything you can do, if both people are wearing them and they're both, so these masks, we tested surgical masks just under one set of conditions and they work, they're about 80 to 90%. They filter about eight for each person. So they're cutting them back quite a bit. The other thing you can do that's super important and we're talking to people, um, I'm helping a lot of people sort of with reopening. Once it's in the indoor air, you can do a lot with indoor air. You can measure that air, you can filter that air, you can put UV lights you can do all kinds of things to make that air very clean inside. And so those are the kinds of things you have to do in addition. But the masks are, I just call them sort of like, a, they're almost like a plan B. Um, they're gonna keep you protected if something else isn't working well. But still social distancing and hygiene have to happen as well. So, so what social distancing distance would you advocate? Mm. And, um, and as a follow on, how much uh, of, uh, of uh, COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus do you need to get into you to be sick? We don't know the dose that makes you sick. Uh, people guess, they're guessing that it's very low because it's so contagious, right? So that's a hint that it's low, whatever that means. Um, as they say, infectious disease doctors have taught me, it, it only takes one to get in there and replicate. So, you know, we have to be careful. But usually, you know, it's a distribution. So, you know, it's some number. Yes, for some viruses, it's 10. For some viruses, it's a million or more. So this one, we don't know. Um, as far as your first question, your first question, actually, how far away would you stand from everybody? Uh, how far do I stand? Uh, evidently too far. I had someone tell me to move up in line the other day. <laughs> so I stand about 10 feet away. I think about the person in front of me smoking a cigarette and whether I could smell their smoke or not. And if I could smell their smoke, I could smell their viruses if they were sick. That's what I do outside. I'm super careful and I'm wearing a mask. Um, unfortunately, not everybody's, most people aren't wearing masks. And so outdoors, I'm, I keep my distance. Um, indoors, ah, that's a tough one. Social distancing Still, you want to social distance just in case someone coughs or sneezes on you. But the fact of the matter is, once someone breathes it out in a room, that will just build up and float around the whole room. And so until that room gets cleaned. And so six feet kind of doesn't have as much meaning inside. So it's summertime and a lot of us have kids who will want to go swimming in the local pool. 
Um, we've been chloroxing down our counter, so I'm assuming that chlorinated water will kill this this virus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would think so. You know, I mean, that's yeah. I wouldn't worry about it as in being yeah. It's not going to like swimming pools too much, but again, they're going to have to do those tests. So that's all the things that people are looking at right now. Okay, so going back to your research, um, could the virus and bacteria load that is spewed into the atmosphere becomes aerosolized? Can it um, uh, help us develop immunities and whatnot? I mean, do you have any sense of what might be good about it? Oh, it's good. Yeah, I mean, the idea is, right, that if you get exposed and you are one of those people who luckily don't get any symptoms, then you're, in theory, you're protected. Although, the studies that come out, some people question that a little bit. But um, yeah, so if you could just sort of get, it gets back to my point that if we all sort of wore masks and breathed in a little bit and got a little bit sick, right, then we could sort of knock it back to where we could go, you know, take it down, back down to our normal functioning society. Um, the only way we can get there is by scaling back sort of the doses. And this comes back to cleaner air, ventilation, and masks is the main, and distance. Great. Great. Okay. So somebody had a question. Um, oh, um, uh, Margaret, do you want to do this live? I see the NOAA cooperative. Uh, I, yeah, I answered it. Oh, on, uh, oh, gotcha. That, that was the, that was where I was going next. The C-I-M-E-A-S. Yeah. Pretty specific. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you see any other uh, questions we haven't gotten from our audience too? Um, you might, uh, there Kim, there's a question about the health of the water in the bay. Oh, we did uh, that. Yeah, we got that one. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't, we haven't looked at that, at that one yet. Mm-hmm. How about airplanes? Uh, it, if people wear masks, I'm not flying for a while. I'm mm-hmm. not traveling for a while. But, you know, airplanes, they have, there are a number of papers that have come out on on previous on the previous virus on previous respiratory viruses that show you know a large fraction of the plane has can be infected Um, but airplanes also can clean their air pretty well effectively too so it comes back to this issue as long as your air handling system is is set up well now everybody i'm being contacted by a lot of people who develop buildings and are thinking about this problem and they're thinking about ways that you can put filters into the air ducts that actually could just take out this virus. And there are ways to do it. I mean, that's what I tell people that it's a very fixable problem. You know, I think there's been a certain amount people say, well, we can't say it's airborne because that's, that could scare people, but it's not scary. You fix it. You know, aerosols are very easy to filter. And so I look at it as a fixable problem, but you have to acknowledge it's happening before you implement strategies to make it better. And so we're just pushing hard, not to scare people that it's in the air, but to say these, if once it's in the air and this is the way it's spreading, these are the things you must do to reduce the spread. And more people are listening. So I'm hopeful. Uh, we've turned around something that people believed in the medical community for almost 100 years. They believed it was all droplet, all touch, all contact, and it wasn't aerosols. And so we've actually, now people are going to go back and look at other infectious diseases, like how they get trans- transmitted. So um, mask wearing is a, there's several questions about it. Mm-hmm. Um, when people wear masks, did they do protect themselves and others? Um, N95s are supposed to be the the gold standard. Um, do you advocate for the public wearing something along that level at all? I 
I think the public, it would be great. And then now they're actually, you can get them and they're not, they're pretty inexpensive. I, I wear, our family wears surgical masks. That's 90% filtering at the size, in this size range, which is good. Um, you know, N95s are harder to get hold of. And what I will say is they're harder to have them fit you correctly. They fail more commonly. And so they go from, the 95 means that they're filtering out 95% in theory. What happens if that you don't get them fit properly to your face? They rapidly fall to like 30%. And so, you know, the surgical masks are just much more, you know, they're more comfortable to wear. They, they're more easy. You can actually tell when they're working because you can feel them puffing in and out as you breathe. Uh, they fit the form of your face better. That's what I, I mean, to me, people that have these homemade masks, I haven't, I haven't done that. Um, and again, the homemade masks have a large variability uh, in terms of their, how well they work. Uh, basically, depending on the thickness, you know, how, the thread count, if you will, the type of material, there are just, there's one paper, one paper that studied this just at the beginning. And so we don't know as much about them. The other thing I'll add, the N95 masks that have a valve are not good because when you, that means that you're protected, but when you breathe out, if you're the infected one, you're breathing out your viruses. So they only work in one direction. They only protect you. So those are really designed to protect like people from dust and construction or wildfire smoke. Those are, you know, designed for a completely different purpose. And so the valve is a, is not a good thing for this virus. So if the government won't uh, step up and, uh, 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 not allow large rallies and concerts and whatnot. Um, obviously you would advocate that people take that responsibility themselves and not go. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you don't have to listen to the government to know what the right thing and it's your health that's at risk or you're putting other people's health at risk. And so I don't, I'm not waiting for the government to tell me what to do on this one. I mean, we're sort of, and it's also being done more at a local level. Our state was, you know, I, I hope that our state will start to, I, you know, some states are expanding beyond uh, looking at the more current research than just S CDC and WHO. Those are the main organizations that give us uh, guidance. I will tell you the CDC and WHO's guidance has changed, but I will tell you happily, they both now say wear face coverings. That I'm very proud of. Um, so we've been, we've been just, the aerosol community, we've been just relentless, you know, sort of making this message go. I dealt with Fauci when I wrote this article. He said it is. He agreed. He edited the paper. He was really helpful. And he agreed. He said the most important thing we can do is universal masking. Look around. I mean, you can't believe it when you look at the, it, that's not an accident. So like, why do we have to go through this? Why do we have to be stuck like we are? And one thing that's just in the other, in Asian countries, they wear a mask out of respect. They respect you. They respect your health. They respect people's health. So they do it because they feel sick. They've done this way before this virus came along. Somehow we aren't doing that. And people are fighting against these masks, which is just, it's just, in, you know, going to end up hurting everybody in the end. So, Kim, where was the, your publish, uh, paper published? Can you just give us an overview of that real quickly? Yeah, it was published in Science. It was a perspective. Yep. And yep. Purple Air, can you put that link in there too, Margaret? She can find it. Yep, purpleair.com. And you can buy them online. Yep. And once you do so, um, actually, uh, 
Yeah. Tell me, so we put you on our, yeah, our exactly. we have our own map. We're tracking who from UCSD and who, what supporters of UCSD have these. Um, so yeah, tell us. And if schools, give them to your schools. I mean, the schools are using them to communicate. Uh, we do school projects with the high schools and they love these. And so this really is a way we've gotten kids to just get fired up about doing science, which we need more kids that want to do science. It's really a, they love the sort of air quality side of things. Okay, so we have a couple of last questions that I'd like to get to. There are several questions that are talking about being outside this summer, water mm-hmm. recreation, camping, and whatnot. And um, what, what are your feelings about that? Uh, as I say, outside, you're a heck of a lot safer. Um, when I have to, like, I'm just kind of starting to meet with a couple of people. Sometimes you just like at the point, you just want to talk to somebody. So we do it. We do it with masks. We do it at a distance. And we do it considering the wind direction. <laughs> it's terrible, but we kind of align ourselves to know the wind is not blowing. You know, you just, if you're going to talk to somebody for an hour, you don't really want to be breathing what they're speaking just in case. So, you know, I think outdoors is just a million times safer. I think we need for our own mental health to be outside as much as we can. But, and with masks, I just think you're pretty darn safe. But there's somebody, CBS asked me, you know, is it, are you risk-free outside? No. The only way you're risk-free, if you want me to promise you you won't get it, is if you stay inside and don't see anybody. But we can't keep going like this. This is We've got to get back. And people, other places have gotten back. And all you have to do is wear a mask. So the longer we fight this, the longer we're going to stay in this um, limbo land. And um, so we just, we just got to embrace, embrace it. So you've been talking with the city. You've been talking with uh, UCS, UC San Diego to a lot. Have you been in contact with the governor's office? No, I have not. Um, I, it's been mostly the city. It's actually been a lot of other cities. I've been talking to leaders of actually uh, people in the UK implemented after our paper came out. Um, there were a number of people that contacted me. And I'm kind of proud to say that they actually implemented uh, required, like, the, for example, the UK just required masks on all public forms of transportation on June 15th, and they cited our paper. So we've been able to get, you know, through that paper, even though it was really nothing new, it was just connect the dots, but they were, but people have implemented, uh, they're basically requiring more masks um, in different parts of the world. You know, it's one of the questions is, I got asked, I did, yeah, KPBS this morning, and they asked, should masks be mandated? I mean, there's only so far we can take that. I think, you know, you can answer that question differently. You know, you're allowed in this store or whatever with the mask and it's required. I I actually think that's a smart rule to have. I only go in those stores. Um, We're going to have to think about how heavy handed we want to be, you know, in different places that we work, school, lecture halls. These are all questions. Personally, I would prefer people make the choice themselves than have to mandate it. But if they don't make the choice pretty soon, we're going to have to mandate it. So that's great. We have run out of time. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Prather, uh, for this very insightful and uh, thoughtful presentation. Um, It's giving everybody a lot to think about. And I think your message of personal responsibility is the strongest one. And BC Linen, thank you so much for your introduction and your participation. I really want to thank our speakers and our donors for driving this level of research innovation 
um, is through your dedication to philanthropy. And uh, if there's anybody out there who's not part of Chancellor's Associates or UCSD Giving, please consider it. It's an incredible place that is moving um, innovation and research forward at an incredible rate. Um, I want to thank you again for attending, and we'll see you again on July 8th. So be safe, wear your mask, and thank you for being part of UC San Diego Chancellor's Associates. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.